So first I want to say, wow, Lois. Oh, my gosh. You rocked my socks and ruined my makeup, and then I touched it up, and I got lipstick all over me. It was so good. Oh, my gosh. The testimonies, the honesty, the laughter, the crying. I mean, it was the best feature film I've ever experienced in my life. It was perfect, and you're amazing. And so, God, we just thank you for Lois. We thank you for the gifts on her life. I thank you this is just the beginning. God, I ask that you would release courage, that she would step into the fullness of what you have for her. God, I thank you that we would be a sisterhood to stand behind her, encourage her, push her when she needs it, pray for her, bless her. And, God, I thank you that you opened the doors and you said you are the one who lifts up our head at the right time. And so, God, like Joseph, I pray that her head would be lifted up and she would be at awe and look around and say, how did I get here? And, God, we just celebrate in advance what you're doing in Lois's life. In Jesus' Jesus' name. Amen. And God, I just thank you for Pastor Debbie. She has single-handedly launched so many women in ministry. You sit next to this woman, guys. Wow. Could you imagine? I mean, that's essentially what an apostle does is it lifts somebody else, puts them in position, recognize the gift on somebody's life. She's not threatened. She's not egotistical. She'll just recognize, oh, you're awesome. Let's put you here. Let's put you here. Lunch speaker here. Um, I'm just impressed by who Pastor Debbie is. And I think of fireworks and unicorns and butterflies when I think of Pastor Debbie. And I know she's thinking I'm making it up sometimes, but this is really how I feel about her. There's emojis all inside of me for Pastor Debbie. And I just think you're amazing. And we love you so much. Okay. So I guess I'll just kind of continue with our talk where we were. And Okay. Um, I'm deciding where I wanted to start. Okay. So I'm going to describe a term called enactment. And if anybody has any training in psychology, you're going to know that I'm slaughtering this very much. This is a very poor definition because it's an analytic term. It's very deep. And you don't need to know all that. It's not relevant. I'm trying to just kind of give you the meat and the bones to understand just how this might apply in our everyday lives, even with the Lord. So enactment means there's an unconscious part of you that when you were a little bitty, you learned how to relate. So you'll find yourself, some people tend to be the leader, some people tend to be the follower, some people are in the front, some people are kind of shy and timid. You kind of learn how to relate. It's a combination of your personality and the roles and relationships you're around. And so in all of that, you're learning a style of relating. And there's lots of interesting research about just certain populations, like children of alcoholic parents. How a child of an alcoholic parent, they don't really know which parent they're going to get, right? They have the one that's happy-go-lucky. They have the one that's aggressive. They have the one that's nice. They have the one that's quick and impatient and going to get you, right? So all of that now creates a grid inside that child that makes them very confused, and they don't know which parent they're going to get, right? And so then that can create a lot of misfiring in the brain that I don't really know which response, right? And so I can misread signals sometimes. Um, And that can also happen with extremely rigid parents or parents are kind of just inconsistent. All of that stuff causes confusion in the brain, and I don't really know how to relate. kind of throws me off guard in relationships. So I might just kind of be a little guarded, or I might have some defenses or kind of expecting the worst before I expect the best out of people. So if I have that background, that's not bad. It's just recognizing, oh, that's an area for Jesus to love on me and give me an extra portion of his grace and love in that area of my life. Um, Because all of us have been, you know, fostered and grown and, you know, all this stuff in a fallen world. And so I hope none of this produces 
versus bad feelings of like, oh, no, that's me. But it's more like, hey, if that is, you get a double portion from Jesus. Because for all of your heartache, it's a promise throughout Scripture that you'll get double in that area. Um, So that's just my caveat. So enactment is the relationship of the past creates a template used for you to understand everything else going forward. So every new relationship is now going to be filtered through the past relationships and experiences. Whether we like it or not, it just is. If a past relationship is emotionally unresolved for you and you're unconscious, it's like part of your soul is kind of locked in a mausoleum or a room inside of your unconscious. And within that place are all your emotions, um, all the pain of that, and your defense mechanisms are your friend, and they're trying to protect you. And the whole goal of your defense mechanisms are to make sure you do not feel pain. And so just like putting your hand on a hot stove, everything inside of me is now wired once I've been burned to not ever do that again. And so your defense mechanisms do the same in relationships. Oop, don't trust. Oop, she just gossiped. Oop, she betrayed my confidence. Those people weren't really my friend. This person doesn't really love me. Um, you get so close and you get burned. Men, you can't trust them. You know, all the stuff that people say, and now I've created a belief system, and it kind of locked that room inside where all that pain. And if we remember our little tent on Mount Everest, it's like that is an isolated part of me that I don't even know is there. And I'm walking around and doing life and loving people, loving Jesus, and have no idea that I now have this little pain room inside of here. And from that place, now I'm walking around, getting to know people. But once people get so close, it's all your attachment stuff starts getting activated. It's kind of like how I see it all the time, where people are like, I get along with everyone except my spouse. Because with your spouse, that's the person who comes in close enough to your attachment stuff that now all that stuff gets activated. Right. Um, I have never been so mean to somebody until they tried to pursue me. (sighs) I am a completely different person. I'm very nice normally. Um, And then there's all this attachment stuff and all this fear of getting hurt and all that rejection stuff and self-sabotage. All that stuff gets activated. and It's all very unconscious. And I always feel like I'm right. I don't ever think the other person's wrong. Right. Because my emotions are telling me that I'm right. And they're the one making me feel this. The deception, however, is those emotions are already inside of me. And that's my whole goal And every time I talk is to tell you Jesus wants access into those pain pockets because you're walking around every day with emotions that those defense mechanisms are kind of walling off. And he's like, please let me in, precious. But he's a gentleman, so he won't go in until he's invited. And I won't know to invite him unless I know that that's there. So that's sometimes when we walk through life and we have relationships and we go, gosh, why am I in a relationship like this? Why is this happening again? You know, and I have these certain reactions that are kind of repetitive. Use that as a catalyst for Jesus kind of pointing at that going, hey, this might be one of those pain rooms, that pain tent, that your defense mechanisms literally create a blind spot and you don't even know it's there. Everyone else can see it in us. Everyone else can see it in me. But I can't. And so that's where I'm like, ah, Lord, I keep having this reaction in these situations. So it's my job to now open that tent, open that door, open that room to him to come into that pain. Because in that pain, as much as it sucks to go there, it is ruining my life. It's going to sabotage and create patterns and dynamics where I am at the center of every single time that happens. And it's not fair. And it sucks. Um, and most of it was stuff that, was, that happened to us when we were young and vulnerable and didn't know any better. And now we're just kind of playing out that same dynamic. And so it's kind of like if there's a room with all these mirrors. 
And once somebody gets so close and the attachment stuff gets activated, now it's almost like, let's say Shance is in my life right now. So let's say I put him in that room, and now I'm relating with him as if he's every other guy who's ever been in my life that's hurt me, duped me, deceived me. And right now my biggest fear is this fear of being deceived, fear that he's not quite who he says he is, getting tricked, which I was joking about the Antichrist thing. That was totally... Funny, but now that I think about it, that's kind of like accurate, right? Because Antichrist, it's somebody you think you can trust. It's somebody who's going to give you peace, who's going to proclaim to the world that I've got a solution for peace. But then he ends up like duping everybody and you find out he offers the pig on the... So I think I really might be thinking that he's the Antichrist. I'm just kidding. Um, but anyway, I put... She ins- because he's in my life right now, I put him in this room where I now am projecting all this stuff. And so we'll be having a day, and then one little thought, one little feeling, and then I'm like, and then all this weird and fear, and you're bad, and you're not safe, and all these reactions come out of me, and I'm thinking he's all these things. So now I'm going to act like he is, right? Because I feel like it's true. That's coming from my emotion, and I think you're the face that makes that emotion come inside of me. So now I'm going to start relating with Chance like he is bad, he's not safe, he's whatever. Right. And then he's going to probably not feel so good about that. Right. And after several months of that, he's probably going to be like, oh, gosh, that's a little burning out. Right. And so then he's going to get testy. He's going to get irritable. He's going to get frustrated at me. And then I'm going to go, see, I knew it. See, it's what I was was afraid of. You're doing it. This is happening right now. And then I create the very thing I was afraid of. Right. Because that's what I'm staring at. That's what I'm, my mind is thinking about fear. I'm, I'm in this room with all these mirrors of all the worst case, all the deceiving, all the bad that could happen if I let this person into my heart. And you know what's crazy? Is Jesus isn't in that room either. Even though I'm passionately in love with Jesus and love him more than anything, there are areas of my life, in my soul, that Jesus isn't allowed there either. Because I'm afraid that at an unconscious level, if he goes in there, what if he deceives me? What if he lets me down? What if he tricks me? And I know that this doesn't make sense because none of us walk around like that. We don't think that we have that until you start realizing the emotional areas you just kind of skirt around or you just repent real quick and just kind of move on and not marinate and let him into those places and let him move in and start cleaning house. I have to actually acknowledge that place and let him in. Because a gentleman isn't going to force his way in, right? And so, um, so if a past relationship is emotionally unresolved, then now you're going to be applying that to everybody around you that gets so close and especially to Lord. And so then you create the expectations. Um, so your beliefs create your expectations. So if I expect... Um, that this conference is going to be amazing and wonderful, then I'm going to have an expectation that it's going to be amazing, and I'm going to look for that, right? If I expect that it's just going to be like whatever, I'm going to look for flaws, I'm going to look for the bad, I'm going to see the worst, because my expectation cues up or primes the brain to look for what details. We are always proving ourselves right. So based on your beliefs of what you go into something, you create an expectation And now that expectation is, is this being met? Is it not? And if I have this expectation that it's here and then God does this whole other thing and my life doesn't look like that, then I get offended and I get hurt, right? Because based on my beliefs, I have all these expectations. And so when your, your expectations inform your interpretation of reality. So again, you're looking for proving yourself right. 
You know, 90 people may be nice at, at the church or the Bible study, but then if that one person gives you a look, then all of a sudden it's like, oh, that, that's a bad church. It's not safe. Those people are. Or another person going, oh, yeah, that one person probably just needs more love. They, they may have just come from a bad background. Based on my interpretation of that, because I have a belief system going into every single situation. When I walk in, I'm creating beliefs. And my nonverbals, how engaging I am versus how not engaging I am, determines what reactions I'm going to get out of people. All of which was decided by my belief system prior to even entering the situation or the relationship. Um, so it's interesting with Job. I don't think he caused all that happened, but it is interesting that he was already repenting on behalf of his kids, believing something bad was going to happen. And so what I feared has come upon me. What I dreaded has happened to me. Job 325. That's the basis of what's called the self-fulfilling prophecy that I believe something bad is going to happen. And then now it's kind of like, oh my gosh, now that's my interpretation of when life happens because all of us, have bad that's going to happen, but you also have a God who's going to turn it together for good. So when Job was in that situation, his interpretation is bad. Why is this happening to me? It's not fair. Gosh, this sucks. And he's complaining, right? Which all of us would do. I'm not criticizing by any means. But if I understand that, you know what, Lord, you're faithful. And even if you're going to, you know, walk through this valley with me, you'll be with me. And I trust you. And he did trust the Lord, but a lot of that hurt and offense came out because it's kind of like, wait, I had a belief and expectation that I shouldn't go through bad stuff. That I'm, you know, I'm walking with God. This bad stuff shouldn't happen. And so then the Lord disappointed that by allowing, not that God caused it, but allowing that bad stuff to happen to us. So then we have an expectation that's disappointed. And so then we develop that mistrust. And I don't quite trust the Lord in that area of my life, whatever that is. Um, so fear is housed in your soul, and fear is um, conditioning from your past. Just like hot stove, I know to not put my hand there. Um, just like certain relationships, I know not to go there. Whether that's fair or not to the current people, that's conditioning. That's a conditioned response. And the same is true when we're approaching Father God. It says there is no fear where love exists. Rather, perfect love banishes fear for fear involves punishment. And I thought that was interesting. And the person who lives in fear has not been perfected in love because we're still expecting punishment when we come to Father God. So if I have an expectation that God's looking to punish me, then when my car breaks down, when my taxes aren't avail- ready, or I have IRS, no, you know, when I have all this bad stuff, then I expect my interpretation based on my past is God's punishing me. I didn't have my quiet time. I did something wrong. You know, God's really getting after me, and he's got this mean face, and now I've created an expectation based on my belief that this is happening because of a bad thing. As opposed to for Job, as much as it sucked, God was actually honoring him and promoting him. And in a short season, relatively, he actually doubled everything that he had lost. So if we can start to create expectations of the goodness of God, and you notice all of our themes about his good, good father, this great love, this trustworthy father, everybody has touched on it. And it's beautiful to see how we didn't talk about it, and yet every piece has been like, let's change our mind and create an expectation that, yes, bad stuff is going to happen. Life is going to happen. But in that, if I can start going, but God... He'll turn it together for good. He'll work these things together for good, even though it sucks right now. When I can make that shift, it protects me from offense. And offense is where I take that place of mistrust toward the Lord. 
God, that wasn't supposed to happen. Why did you let them do that to me? Why did that happen? And when I do that, the enemy is like, sweet, the door is shut to the Lord, and the enemy has free reign through that door of offense and bitterness and unforgiveness toward the Lord. And to be fair, most of us have it, and we just don't realize it. You know, we go along main life, and then all of a sudden something in life happens, and this knee-jerk reaction comes up, and it's like, whoa, where'd that come from? And then we just move on. And sometimes we need to take those knee-jerk reactions back to Papa and let him heal us because there may be some emotions and past stuff that we just got through life, you know, you're kind of in survival mode for a while, and you don't realize how much that actually affected you. So if I expect punishment when I come to the Father, the belief will initiate the enactment, which is when I'm unconsciously relating with him as if he's that past person. So the part, uh, so that part of you, and I, I use part language, so there's the part of you that's like in love with the Lord, and then there's these other parts of me that are like, uh, God's good, but right now I'm just kind of stressed and I just kind of want to complain about it, you know? Like there's all these different parts of us. So there's a part of you that will continue to hide from intimacy under the fig leaves of works and performance. And so um, I think shame really entered at the garden. And I'm sure lots of people have already talked about it, but it was such a clear picture as I was thinking about Adam and Eve. That when they had messed up, when they sinned, when they failed, their immediate knee-jerk reaction is to hide from the Father, expecting punishment. Which goes back to our verse that... Those who've been made perfect in love no longer fear punishment. But if we have fear still, that means maybe there's some parts of us that are expecting him to punish us, expecting bad, expecting doom and gloom. And if, and if that is, then that's okay because that's in me. And I just take that to the Lord and I say, Jesus, I probably need to be comforted right here. Maybe I just need some compassion and a corrective experience to know you're not that ugly face in my unconscious that you're going to be mad at me and disappointed and, oh, God, I did it again. How can you ever forgive me? Almost like I feel like there's a a measuring stick, and he's kind of like, Shannon, are you kidding? You did it again. And he's not, but my unconscious feeds that loop, and so then I'm more likely to hide behind the leaves like Adam and Eve and hide my sin, hide my shame, take that area and just kind of parse it off and not tell the Lord. So... um, And many times, I think we hide behind works and performance. And as long as we're having our quiet time, we're going to church, we're doing everything we think we're supposed to, then we feel like we're in right standing with God. But once you mess up, then all that stuff of like, oh my gosh, it happened because I didn't do my quiet time, I haven't been spending time with the Lord, oh man, I'm so off because of this. Once you do that, it reveals works and performance. Because now I'm basing this life circumstance based on my works and performance. If these good things happen, it's because I've had extra quiet time. As opposed to, he's just good. And I don't think, sometimes with Joseph and David, they could have gotten out of that season any earlier. Sometimes God just takes us through season. And it's not me working harder or striving or earning. Sometimes it's just like the Lord's like, okay, calendar of heaven, it's now. You know, elevate her when she doesn't deserve it. When she's on drugs, she didn't pray and fast and seek heaven that day. He's just like, okay, I'm going to grab her today. You know, and it's not based on our work's performance. But I think I, first of all, am big on that in such a subtle way. And I don't realize, I don't mean to, but I'm trying to always make sure I'm right with God until I mess up. And then my immediate response is, oh, God's going to be mad at me and be ashamed and be afraid and be worried. Um, But Papa wants intimacy. He wants you to come to him. He wants you to know that he gets on his knees. 
and he draws close to you and that his face is kind. He wants to be the healer of your soul. And so many times we think, oh, I've been in the Lord this many years. I shouldn't have done this. We get our act right. You know, we just kind of move on. Instead of going, I'm a little girl. I'm a babe in Christ. I'm supposed to come like a child. I need to be scooped up. And even if it was my tantrum and my mistake and my sin, I still need him to clean me up and make it better and reassure me that I'm okay. I need that time of reconnecting and my unconscious getting to see a gentle face instead of what culture has shown us of the mean, you know, authority figures who are going to get us. You know, Um, and so mirror neurons help us in understanding empathy. So mirror neurons have to be cultivated. And if you don't have someone show you empathy in childhood, you're not just going to automatically have that grid. So if for cultural sense, a lot of people have heard the expression, just pull yourself up by your bootstraps. Oh, you're fine. Get up. You know, someplace, sometime. That's totally fine. But if a child hears that and they never hear the opposite of, you're okay, come here, we're good, and they reattach, and you connect, and they look left, and you look left, and you giggle, and they giggle, and they sad, and then you're sad. They need that because all that while the brain is being formed and all this really neat stuff is happening so that later they're able to recognize and connect with empathy on other people's faces. But if they don't get that, then they're not going to get that empathy. Right. It's kind of like people will say, oh, man, I'm really sorry that happened. And you're like, oh, OK, thanks. You know, and it like doesn't go in like people are like, oh, you're so pretty. Mm-hmm, yeah, thanks. You know, and you can kind of tell it doesn't go any deeper. That's your ability to kind of digest and take in empathy that when people say nice things, they it sometimes actually mean it. And I don't have to just kind of uh, uh, that doesn't fit. That doesn't connect with me, you know. And so mirror neurons are the part of you that recognize the compassion, the kindness on somebody's face. Or they interpret the negative and the critical and they misinterpret. And so for us, we need to spend a lot of time looking at pictures in our imagination or even in real life paintings. That's one of the reasons we have this is that's in my office for me mostly, um, so that I remember his gentleness, his kindness, that I think about a gentle face even when I mess up. Um, And I like this picture of Jesus because I think that's what we should look like, that we're being scooped up. And I think that's the moment of sin where I've messed up, I've failed, I've fallen short of the glory of God. And he's like, I love you. It's already been paid for at the cross. There's nothing you can do. You just come back to me. That's our only step is get scooped back up and let him put me on his lap. And I go, I messed up and I'm sad and I'm scared and I'm worried. And he goes, that's okay. I'm right here. I'm going to tell you my promises. I'm going to breathe life into you. I'm going to put my forehead against yours and breathe life and hope and joy and peace back into you. The enemy can't have you. Just keep your eyes on me and I'm going to hold your ears away from the enemy. But what we normally do is... Okay, I need to have an extra long quiet time tomorrow, you know, and we kind of step back into hiding behind the fig leaves of performance and work. And we're trying to like kind of be good and earn and not do that thing and fast that thing and blah, blah, blah. And not that those aren't good decisions, praying and fasting and quiet times, all great. It's just the motive of the heart. Am I actually taking that vulnerable eye area or am I going, okay, I'm just going to get my game plan and I'm going to be back in control and make sure that you and I are good, God. It's a big difference in our heart. Um, so your expectations set the tone of your interactions. 
And your expectations determine the filter that create your perception. And so when you see God's face, and I'll just encourage you to start thinking about imagining his face. If, he, if, God, if you're here with me right now, what's your face look like? And that's what my counselor did with me yesterday. Jesus, when I'm on stage tomorrow, what's your face look like? And his face was right here, and that's where I got that from. It's because he showed me this picture of him nose to nose, breath to breath, just so close, so intimate. When for me, I was like, I didn't study enough, I didn't prepare, I've been traveling, I've been working a lot, um, I probably haven't even gotten asleep, I don't even know what I'm going to say, I'm so worried, Lord, I don't have a plan. And yet he's like, I'm just going to be right here, and I'm going to breathe into you. And the more I do that, the more reassuring and the more my mirror neurons start to recognize that face, that expression, that he really does like me and he really does give me a diamond heart. Um, how you t- come to God will definitely t- determine how you perceive him responding to you. So the parable of the loan money, um, what you believe about the Lord determines your expectancy. Your expectancy about him determines how you relate with him. How you relate with him determines what you will perceive about him. So again, all that's fancy language to say God is real and he's stable and in his word it says who he is. And yet I have all these different variations of how I think he's responding to me. Right? And he he said he's stable and he's a dad and he knows we're flesh and that we're fallen and we're broken and we're, we're just little and we need a savior every day. Not just at salvation, we need every day a savior to be big for me. Um, so there's two servants and, um, so there's three servants is the story. All of them get money, and one of them buries it. Two servants must have believed there was worth and value in giving their best. So in giving their best, they receive the best, right? Because they worked hard, they believe he was a good master, and, it, and that there's a payoff to working for the Lord, right? Because the enemy always says, why live this Christian life? Everybody else is easier out there. Just pocket some of that money. Nobody's going to know. Why give your tithe? That's like not a good idea. Keep that money for yourself. The enemy always has a solution, you know, oh, just live with the guy. Just do all these things that aren't actually truth, right? But they're a shortcut. And so it's kind of like that, where I am like, Lord, This is not my idea of a good idea, but I'm going to go ahead and invest your money, invest and sow and steward and make good decisions, even when everybody else is making other decisions, I'm still going to do that. Then I'm the servant who's believing the best about my father. And the interesting thing is, I believe the father believes the best about us all the time. Most of me believes that. Some parts probably are still learning that. But I believe he believes the best about us all the time. He said, when I'm unfaithful, he will prove himself more faithful. When I'm disobedient, he'll prove himself even more consistent and stable in his promises. So that's truth. But even if I, even if he's believing that, then I can still be in the place of not trusting him and not obeying him. You know, not tithing, not spending time in his word, not spending time with um, the body of Christ. If I'm doing that, I'm like the other servant who's accusing the master and saying, um, based on these beliefs, I just think you're a bad guy, you're stealing, you're no good, you're rotten. Um, and so if I'm judging the Lord and if I'm standing in judgment of him, he is no longer able to pour his grace and mercy into me, right? Because just disobedience. So he loves me. He's always thinking the best about me. But now I'm going to have to deal with consequences and cause and effect. He's not mad at you. He's not disappointed. He still loves you. But just the normal cause and effect. So what we believe about the Lord is the crux of the whole Christian walk. 
Because if I'm the servant who thinks God is unjust and he gives to some, but he doesn't give to me, and I start forming these judgments about him, because that one servant, it's all judgment. And so he's like, well, then I just didn't invest. I just hid the money because I'm afraid of you. And the Lord's like, I love you. In reality, I love you, and I've been believing the best, but you're not going to get as much of a harvest, as much of a reaping of all the promises. While the other two guys are like, well, we're just going to believe the best, and we're going to believe that there's value and worth to continuing to be obedient and do the right thing and be faithful. So that's kind of, for me, a good parallel of what our projections create and how that creates an enactment. If I believe the worst and I'm judging the Lord and I'm offended at him, I'm going to believe that bad thing and I'm probably going to create dynamics that make the Lord seem unkind. And it's like, I'm never getting blessed. Why is this happening to me? And I get all offended and everybody else's life is blessed. And I don't realize maybe I'm part of that. You know, while somebody else is just like a childlike and just like, well, I just believe that God's good. And this sucky thing right now, I just believe God will turn it for good. I just kind of choose to believe that. That helps me stay on the course that will lead to blessings and obedience and harvest. Because what I sow is what I reap. And all along, the Lord loves you, irrespective of what choice. It's just how much you get blessed based on what you believe about him determines your choices and what you're going to expect from him. And if I expect that he is the rewarder of those who diligently seek him, then I'm going to want to seek him. I'm going to be diligent because I know rewards are coming. I know that he's a man who keeps his word and his promises. And so that's our hope, is that we change our shift, our shift, our change. Just kidding. Um, That we believe the best about the Father. um, And we trust that it's worth being obedient. It's worth being in his presence. And if I ever have an image of God being mad or punishing me, distant or this bad thing's happening because he's mad at me, then I know that that's a lie. That's a projection. It's an enactment. And I need to just take it to him and say, Papa, this is a lie, but I know your word says this is true. So hug me, cuddle me, show me your kind face. And as I look at his gentle and kind face, I remember the truth. And all that enactment stuff falls away. You see me and you know 